Hello and welcome to Book Lovers Companion. My name is Edith and right next to me is my lovely co-host, The Chattering Teacup. Hello. And here with us is crime writer Barbara Nadel. Hello, Barbara, and welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Thank you for making time for us. It's a pleasure. And I would like to introduce you or your background a little bit. And I might also ask you to tell us a little bit about your journey from being a trained actress, from someone who worked in the field of mental health, you taught psychology, and now you are a full-time writer. Could you share a little bit with our audience how that worked out? How did you become a full-time writer? What was your journey like? Well, it was all, my life has been one big accident, really. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing was ever planned, really. I got a, a degree in psychology and for a number of years, you know, when you get a degree in something, you can't necessarily work in that field. And I didn't. I just did whatever I could. I had my uh, son. I've got one child uh, when I was really young. And so I had to just sort of get on and, you know, do stuff to earn money, basically. Eventually, I managed to get a job in my own field. And I worked in a large, old-fashioned psychiatric hospital Um, For many years, I was what they call an an advocate. My subject was mental health law in the UK. And it was advising patients and staff as to, you know, what they were entitled to do, what they're not entitled to do. In that scenario, I worked in a medium secure unit for mentally disordered offenders. So these were people who had, you know, probably like in your own country. I mean, I don't know about Austria, but in, in our system, when somebody is committed, when somebody is accused of a capital crime, like murder. Mm -hmm. They can go in one of two directions if they are assessed by a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. They either go into the criminal justice system, that's when they are deemed to be considered sane, or they come through the hospital system Mm -hmm. um, where they would be put into a secure unit or a medium secure unit depending on their condition. So we had a lot of people with us who were, you know, sometimes they didn't even know they'd committed an offence, you know. So it ranged from that to people who we had a great deal of difficulty with. The system has a great deal of difficulty with it, which is a a group of people that, you know, the system can't decide whether they're sane or not. And those are um, personality disordered people, psychopaths. Mm -hmm. So, and then when our hospital closed, because we were going to go and care for them in the community. Um, (laughs) (laughs) How's that going? (laughs) And so I moved into the community with them. Um, But all that time I was writing. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, just really from for my own sort of amusement, and then we had in my family we had one of we're one of these you know everything's a drama, <laughs> but we had one of <laughs> one of our crises, um, and it was suddenly you know we didn't have any money, so I'd been writing this thing, so I dragged mm. it out of a drawer, 
and said, I'll give it a go. I didn't know anything. I didn't know how you did that. I just sent it to a publisher mm-hmm. yeah. who sent it straight back, you know, really? <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, so then we sorted ourselves out. And then similar thing happened a few years afterwards. And by that time, I'd learned there were people called agents so I thought, right, well, I'll try, I'll try sending it to one of these agents. So I tried a couple and they, oh. you know, Turkey, no. And then I sent it to somebody else who said, well, I don't know, you know, whether I can help you, but why don't you come and talk to me? Mm-hmm. So that was a, a woman called Juliet Burton, who's been my agent ever since. And that was 25 years ago. <laughs> so... Mm-hmm. And she managed to sell that book. And Ooh. again, you know, it's it sort of if you're not in that business mm-hmm. yeah. um, and if you come from a working class background like I do, you just don't know stuff. Yeah. So, you know, when they said they were going to publish the book, I thought, so naive, you know, I thought, <laughs> oh, I'm going to be rich now. <laughs> This book, it will be there forever and it will make my name and it'll be marvellous. And then they said, yeah, we do like it. This is headline uh, mm-hmm. publishers in the UK. And um, But then they s- started talking about, well, we want others. And I'm sort of, ah, I don't know <laughs> what you mean because I'd written this book as a sort of one-off. And it was, going back to my psychological background it was it was me exploring in part what happens when a group of people self-isolate this family in Istanbul had self-isolated they'd cut themselves off from you know the present day they'd cut themselves off from from everybody except people that they actually needed to help them to eat and live you Mm -hmm. know So, and they were all dead at the end of the first book. So I was saying to them, you know, but they're dead. You know, (laughs) I don't know what you want me to do, really. Uh, And then they said, oh, no, 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 it's the police officers we want. Ah. And it was sort of, oh, that hadn't occurred to me. (laughs) You know, when you're, you're, you're trying to solve a problem, to my mind, in that book, which was called Belshazzar's Daughter, Mm -hmm. I was trying to solve a problem. So the police officers were just vehicles for the problem solving. Uh, I hadn't thought about them mm-hmm. going on, mm. but they have. Yeah. And there's now 24 books mm-hmm. about it, them. Yes, indeed. That's... So it, it was all a bit of an accident, really. Incredible. <laughs> a lucky accident. Yeah. Because uh, it's not only one series you are writing, because you have three series. Yes, at one point, yeah. Um, I've done various things because I actually left service some years ago uh, working in the community. There were various reasons for that, nothing to do with the patients, as I always say. You know, I loved working Mm -hmm. with people and I loved working in the community, but the system was so broken that it after a while you you start to realize that you're not actually you're you're burnt out mm-hmm, yeah. so I investigated ways in which I could earn the same amount that I was doing yeah. mm-hmm, working yeah. for the health service yeah. and yeah we I mean 
obviously because, you know, you get paid in a different way. Yeah, I got yeah. paid every month when I was working for them. This is different. You get lumps of money every so often. But I thought, well, if I can, if I can make that work, mm-hmm. even if I have to do other things, you know, other series or what have you. I mean, I was very lucky they let me do other things. Right. So it was as much a sort of financial choice mm-hmm. as anything else. I love doing it. But I'm not the sort of author that, you know, I have to pay bills and, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it has to work financially yeah. because yeah. otherwise yeah. I'm just going to go under, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Let, let me uh, shortly before you ask okay. your question, uh, Tika, for our listeners, let me just shortly mention your series. The one you were talking about at the beginning or the one with the 24 books uh, is set in Istanbul. And it is. The yeah. latest book came out only this year in May 2022 called Bright yes, Price. Just come out, yeah. yeah. The other one or the second one is called the Francis Hancock series. It is set in the East and during the Blitz. Yes. Featuring an undertaker. And this, the third one is the Hakim and Arnold series. But this one is set in modern day London, but yeah. also yeah. in the East End. Yeah. And regarding your long, let's say, call it the longest running series of yours, uh, like you said, 24 books, yes, uh, has also been translated in many languages, including German and Turkish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And your audiobooks are also available in this series in German and English. Mm. Yes. Splendid. Teacup, over to you. <laughs> You're dying to ask your question, so go I on. Just want to know that because the two, say, smaller series are set in the East End where you were born, and the others are set in Turkey. How uh-huh. did you end up in Turkey? Well, it's a place I've been going to for a long time. Um, I have family connection there, okay. and so it 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 was weird when I was working in the hospital. It was sort of, I because I, I've always been a great reader because I think you have to be a great reader t- to write. You know, you, you mm-hmm. really do. Yeah. And I was looking for books one day and I like crime. My my mother is still, a, still with us, still alive, and she's a great crime fiction reader. Oh, and so, so she's I to kind Yes, I'd kind of grown up with it. So I'm looking for sort of crime fiction books because the setting is very important to me. I have to be interested in in the location to some extent. And I was thinking, you know, this I could I I researched crime books set in Turkey. And this is this is prior to Elif Shafak. I think Orhan Pamuk had started to be translated into English by that time, I think just. So, but there was nothing. The, the last, the, the, the only thing I could find was um, a book by Eric Ambler, mm-hmm. the British author, mm-hmm. um, from the 1950s. And it was actually a sort of kind of spy thriller and a romp, and it's called The Light of Day. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, something like 1958 or something it was written. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, surely there's got to be something. I mean, now we've got a whole bunch of Turkish crime writers, which is brilliant. But then... That was in the sort of mid nineties. No, nothing. And so I just thought, oh, I'll just write one myself. 
so that's how it that's how it came about you mm. know somewhere you know well that you know that possibly because tourism wasn't huge from the UK to Turkey at that time mm. I mean it's got bigger yeah um but at that point it wasn't it wasn't huge so um I sort of I mean I'll be honest I did it for my own amusement mm-hmm. really because I my job was very stressful and in that kind of scenario there are no there's no closure when you work with people who have serious mental health issues and have committed yep. crimes yep. Because they sometimes don't know they've done anything. If they do, then they are usually deeply distressed about it. You know, it is unlikely that somebody that ill is going to make any sort of meaningful recovery. Mm. And if you're looking at, you know, if if one of our patients had killed somebody, which was the case in, in quite a few instances, the victim or the survivor if the person survived an attack is not they're not getting closure from that mm. so mm. Got the patient's not getting closure the victim doesn't get closure so you end up you know and it's an imperfect system and it's very strict and you end up at the end of some days just thinking what the hell am i doing yeah yeah can Crime fiction, on the other hand, is mm-hmm. a perfect world because the good guys always win. Yeah. And, you know, the reality is not like that. I mean, as time's gone on, I've kind of addressed that more in the mm. books to reflect that reality. But I think at bottom, crime fiction is a bit of a fairy tale. It's a bit of a mm-hmm. perfect mm-hmm. world, you know. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to ask you, about your mixture of characters. First of all, mm-hmm. my, my question would be, how did you find your main character who you also let age during your books, mm. which is also, I might say, not that usual for a crime writer? Mm. No, um, he sort of appeared fully formed, really. Because as I say, they were just used as a vehicle. He was, he is... Uh, Chetty Nickman, he is a mixture of quite a few people, um, but a large part of him is my father, my late Mm -hmm. father, who was in many ways a very confusing person, but was basically good, but wasn't kind of good on the outside. You know, Mm. he didn't do that thing that a lot of people do, I think, particularly nowadays, of, you know, look at me, I'm a good person, Mm -hmm. I do this, you know, I go to church, this, this and this. And it it just wasn't, you know, this was somebody who was deeply flawed, like Ickman, Mm -hmm. but his heart was good. Mm -hmm. And it, it was also a reflection as well of working in the system that I worked in. We and even today, I mean, the health service is under a lot of attack these days. Um, but there was a sort of, um, you know, if you put a foot wrong, it was desperate. Yeah, but a lot of the good things that people did got overlooked. You know, the people that work in that system, they, you know, the the stress is enormous, Mm -hmm. and 
a lot of people would say, oh, you know, anybody who works with psychiatric patients, they've got to be strange and they probably beat them. And there's some truth that has happened. We know this, you know, and it gets quite rightly a lot of publicity. But within that system, which is deeply flawed, there are good people and they try their best. And he is one of those people. <laughs> they often get sort of overlooked. They often get persecuted within such a scenario because they will speak their minds, you know, mm-hmm. like he yeah. does. Yeah. And he's not, he's, you know, unlike a lot of kind of fictional detectives, you know, he's not, he's not handsome he's got this huge family you know and but he's he's a good soul Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and like i said you also let him age was that something you had intended during the series no No, it just sort of happened okay just sort of happened but you know he's like he's sort of 62 now But he's still going strong. Um, yes, yes, we've read that in the book, in your new book. Yes, he's still going strong. And I think he will, because he is one of these people that, you know, I think if he ever retired properly, <laughs> I think he'd just die, you know, he'd just give up. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it wasn't a choice. You know, sometimes I thought to myself in the past, I wish I hadn't done it because mm. there'd be more. Yeah. But then again, he seems to be doing quite well. So, you know, let's hope so. <laughs> We meet a lot of different characters from different backgrounds. Mm. So there, one are the Turkish Ottoman um, mm. descent, then there are Armenians, then there are Roma, then people from different parts of the country or Kurds uh, that speak um, sometimes different languages and have different upbringings or views on a lot of things and even in the in the police force they're together and mm. even in Istanbul and does it make it somehow easier to set a crime story there because there's such a lot of conflict or does it make it more difficult um I think it makes it easier for me I think it's you know it has a it's a very different city to London obviously oh. but it has a lot in common with London in as much as, you know, in the past it has been a huge melting pot. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I like that kind of dynamism. I mean, a lot of the old, uh, similar to London, a lot of the old ways are breaking down now. You know, certain people lived in certain areas. That is now, as the city modernises, that is breaking up to some extent. So it's probably not as easy to sort of go somewhere and think, right, I'm going to go to such and such a place because I know I will meet, for instance, you know, I will meet, you know, that's where the Jewish population Mm -hmm. is or what have you. So it is becoming, as I say, the same as London, more kind of homogenous. You're more likely to find people almost anywhere but there are still places like there's a, a district called Toralabasha which is it's not a traditional Roma quarter but it has become so it's an old place mm-hmm. because their traditional quarter of a place called Sulakule which was up by the city walls 
that was redeveloped some years ago. So, you know, part of the population moved to new build flats, but they were a long way out of the city. Uh, a lot of people chose to inhabit Tolabasha, which has always been a sort of a kind of a, a real melting pot. You find quite a lot of Syrian Christians in that area, quite a lot of refugees from all over the world in that area. So, you know, people will, if they haven't got a lot of money, will move into somewhere where other people are not necessarily like them, but they're in a similar situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a big, it's a a very big city. Um, I mean, you know, when I first started going there, it was, I think, population in about 1978, nine, that sort of time, was about 2 million. So it was much smaller than London. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you had kind of mass migration from the countryside, basically. And now nobody really knows what <laughs> the true figure is. But it's between, it's somewhere between 14 and 20 million mm-hmm. in Istanbul now. Yeah. So it's grown hugely. And so, you know, you do have to take into account that growth to a certain extent. So it's more difficult in terms of kind of shoe leather, if you like. You're having to go much further. Having said that, the the transport system is much better these days. And I also wonder, you said there was a lot of influx over the years from uh-huh. from yeah. the rural parts like Anatolia and such. Yes, yes. And would you say that this influx of people who bring with them their traditions and mm. their beliefs, that there is now a greater tension within the city between the modern part, because Istanbul is also a very modern city, yes, and, yeah. and the tradition or the old ways – And also combined with the thing of the religions? Yeah, I mean, that was, I guess that was inevitable with people coming in. Uh, I've often sort of likened it to the Industrial Revolution in the UK. Mm -hmm. You know, at the beginning of the 19th century, there was a massive influx of people into London and Manchester and mm-hmm. the cities. And there's always there are always problems. There's always tension there between the you know the the settled inhabitants mm-hmm. and uh the incomers. Yeah, I mean it it's sort of I think sometimes it can be portrayed as as a one-way street. And I think sometimes sort of native Istanbulus can portray it as a bit of a one-way street because they can sometimes feel a bit threatened Mm -hmm. by this massive influx. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, you know, oh, yeah, well, them sort of thing, you know. But actually it is like most things, you know, when you boil it down, it is a two-way street. You find nowadays because you know the young people that are coming up now they're second and third generation so they've only known the city they might go back to their home village once a year Mm -hmm. but they Mm -hmm. are basically city people and you know you will find that there some of some of the the customs and the traditions of the countryside will come will remain 
within mm. those young people and they will treasure them mm. and they will they will like them but they are being influenced even though they mm-hmm. might not acknowledge yeah. it yeah. by the city yeah. you find a lot of young people whose parents or grandparents came from the countryside and you'll talk to them and you know it'll be you know mom or dad or whoever it is wants me to marry somebody mm. from the mm. village but I'm not going to mm. Mm. Yeah. and it's not even a question of I'm going to have to run away to achieve this mm. this is I've told them that's not going to happen. So, <laughs> you know, you've got a quite an empowered youth, I think. Mm-hmm. In, I think it's a city thing as well, yeah. I must say. I'm a city person yeah. myself. But, you know, you do find these, wherever they've come from, the youth tend to be more empowered because they're seeing it around them the yeah. whole time. Yeah. And they're seeing things that, you know, not everything about that life will attract them, but there are going to be things that are sort of, yeah. yeah, you know, I'm quite happy to sort of, you know, I love my religion and I'm happy to carry on with that and I want my children to to inherit that, but I want to choose my own yeah. husband yeah. or wife. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about uh, writing this kind of police procedural because mm-hmm. it I mean, like we said, it's set in a different uh, country, and mm. which also mean you're dealing with a foreign police force. Mm. Did you mm-hmm. find that difficult or challenging? And what did you find challenging or difficult about well, that? It's not easy to deal with any police force, even here. Mm. I would say that probably here in the UK, it's probably got more difficult over mm. the years. There can be, and there is in most police forces, quite a defensive culture. Mm-hmm. So you have to get yourself involved with people who are willing to willing to talk to you mm-hmm. on a sort of reasonable level. That's not particularly difficult. The other thing as well is that now, I mean, unlike when I started, now there's a lot more information on mm-hmm. our own police force in the UK and foreign mm-hmm. police. I mean, there is a lot of stuff online mm-hmm. because in Turkey they use a different legal system to mm-hmm. the to the UK. Um, it's basically the Napoleonic system, mm-hmm. and so. But once you've got your head around that, it's not that difficult because you you. I find myself. When I write the two series, one set in modern Istanbul and one set in modern London, you know, they actually, the reality is it's not that hugely different, but you mm-hmm. kind of click into, right, okay, we work like that in that system, we work like this in this system. I would say that um, over the years, I mean, we in Turkey we've had the stopping of capital punishment um, That was uh, a big thing. That was a mm-hmm. huge difference between the two systems, but that no longer exists. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not existed here since I think it's 1964, something mm-hmm. like that in the UK. Although people these days talk about bringing it back. <laughs> Just leaves yeah. me speechless, but what can you do? So, you know, in and I think... Part of the part of the, the the sort of closer coming together of those two systems 
has happened because of uh, in back in back in the old days when the UK was in the EU. <laughs> don't start me off. Um, <laughs> our system and you know and Turkey was applying for EU mm-hmm, membership, mm-hmm. so everybody was trying to. Mm-hmm bring themselves in line mm-hmm. you know there was a there was a point during the sort of uh i suppose it must have been the early 2000s when it was in policing in turkey it was you know we now have to bring ourselves in line mm-hmm. with the eu because mm-hmm. we have applied for membership yeah, okay. and it was you know all the the sort of the hype about it was all about you know transparent police stations and cracking down on brutality and blah 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 you know so there was much more sort of concurrence at that time and i think there there is to a certain extent now but of course as we know the world has changed as i intimated there here in the in the uk for one i never thought that anybody would be ridiculous enough as to make the country leave the eu but secondly i never ever thought in my lifetime because i mean i don't remember capital punishment obviously mm-hmm. my parents do mm-hmm. and you know it's it's a horror it's an yeah. absolute horror yeah. and I, you hear people talking about it now like it's a possible way forward <laughs> and you think god yeah you know so you have to you know whatever system you're using you have to it's it's not all sort of you know we hope these things evolve well mm. we hope they evolve for the better but sometimes mm. they don't mm. and you have to try and keep up with that momentum mm-hmm. if you want to portray something that has some veracity mm. Yeah. And might I also uh, dive in a little bit into your Francis Hancock series? Oh, yeah. Because yeah. it's, like I said before, it's set during the Blitz. I mean, it's historic yeah. crime fiction. And your main character, he's an undertaker. Uh-huh. So it's set in the Eastern, like we said. Uh, I suppose your heart is still... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can't afford to live there anymore. But <laughs> in the East End. So... At the other series is modern day, but why this historic fiction? Why did you decide to set it at this certain point in time? Well, I, you know, my father was a child during the Blitz, and so you know, you get these stories. My grandfather was a horseman. He was a he was a blacksmith, and he shoed horses. He broke horses. Everything to do with horses. He was your guy. And um, one of his jobs was he looked after the horses of a local undertaker. And, you know, I remember these stories about him going into the stables um, with his horses, his own horses and the horses of the undertaker and calming them because Mm -hmm. it must have been terrifying because they live really near the docks. So the bombing happened in that area. The other thing was Francis Hancock is a First World War veteran. Mm -hmm. And that, again, reflects my grandfather, who was a First World War veteran Mm -hmm. and was completely damaged by that, mentally, by that experience. I mean, my father never knew his his father as a a sort of normal person because he was, he would go through these phases where he would relive 
all that. And of course, in those days, there was nothing. There was, you know, talking about the health service, the health service didn't exist then. So if somebody, particularly a poor person like him, you know, if they if they had psychiatric problems, you know, there were there were two options really. You could try and sort of uh, sweat it out if you like, carry on, or they'd put you away, and that wasn't an option. Yeah. And I, I kind of wanted to look at that mm-hmm. because it had a big effect on all of us. Mm. And I think you know it. It is particularly now. I think it's, you know, I, I find it very difficult with people kind of glibly saying, you know, that, oh, well, if, if the National Health Service disappears, <laughs> we'll manage. Well, we won't. Yeah. You know, yeah. they forget yeah. this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was one. And also there was, um when I did, I did quite a bit of reading about London during the Blitz because my father had intimated these things. Because, you know, in the East End, there, there was a black market. You know, you could get stuff if you could pay for it. But it had been stolen. Mm-hmm. And uh, my my father said, you know, there are loads of crimes committed in, in London because it was dark, you know. So, I mean, what I read of the period, it would seem that, you know, the police don't, to this day, don't know how many people were murdered during that time no because it was everything was blacked out Mm -hmm, you know there there were not the ways of recording Mm -hmm. you know who was who in in those days like there is now and so if you wanted to get rid of somebody (laughs) who was a bit inconvenient (laughs) all you had to do was drop them into a bomb crater basically and you could pull it off cover yeah perfect Mm. very few crimes were solved at that point Because nobody had time. Yeah. And also, as I say, it was, you know, you find a body. We think, well, there's thousands of them everywhere. Mm. Yeah. So an opportunistic moment for... Yeah, hugely mm-hmm. so. <laughs> for quite a few people. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you mentioned Francis was a, a soldier uh, during World War One. Mm. Also in your second series, Modern Day series, the Hakim and Arnold series, one of your main characters is also an ex-soldier. Yes. Yeah. So is there a theme here a little bit? Um, I think not really, not <laughs> consciously, I wouldn't say. <laughs> okay. uh, but I, I think, you know, um, a lot of the Hakim and Arnold series was informed by the various wars in Iraq that Britain uh, got involved with and it was another of these these instances you know I, I mean you know I've I've gone on record so I was very much against that at the time and subsequently you know western people going in with their big boots you know it's just not good but it was uh, part of that also was that the people the soldiers that went to that co- those conflicts in Iraq they were not, you know, you, you just have to trot around London a bit and you discover all these homeless people. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them are ex-servicemen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it is said that, you know, there are services available to them. And there are, but they're not always the right thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you, if you don't, if you don't fit in the right box, then 
it's like, well, there's really nothing for you here. Yeah, yeah. And with the closures of the hospitals as well, my including my old hospital, a lot of people were expected to, to sort of deal with themselves in mm. the public sphere, mm-hmm. you know, and the public don't really want to know. Mm. And you've not been given the tools to to even organise your own life because you're mm-hmm. still sort of back in the battleground. Yeah. But, you know, you're on your own with this, mate, yeah. you know, and that's why he drinks or he used to drink and that's why he took prescription medication because, you know, this is my own experience. This yeah. is this is how a lot of them get through yeah. mm-hmm. even now. And his new partner is Mumfaz Hakim. Mumfaz Hakim, Mumtaz yeah. Um, a Muslim widow. Yes. And it's someone who who you wouldn't expect in this position. And I think, uh, do you also play a lot with these um, expectations people have that are not met? Because when they see her? Um, You see, the thing is that, you know, the East End, like a lot of places where a lot of, because we're all immigrants in the East End, or every one of us, and different waves come in. It's just normal. It's our normal Mm -hmm. life. There are these expectations. You see a woman with a covered head, you think, oh, you know, but it's not really like that. You know, this is modern London. And so she is, you know, she's, as you were saying earlier about the the tension between the countryside and and the city. Yeah, she has, she still values certain things, but she also wants to do her own thing mm-hmm. i mean she's very fortunate and he's based in part on a friend of mine um who uh, whose father actually is is a religious guy and very very sort of you know the most east end person you can imagine in, with his voice <laughs> and everything but and obviously loves his religion and but has very very what you would think of as very, very forward-thinking opinions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so you've got people, you know, we always hear about the extremes. We always hear about the guy who's left his family. You know, he's gone to live somewhere else because he couldn't stand it any longer. You know, he's married somebody outside his culture, you know, and is now doing some, you know, now works in entertainment for argument's sake. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Or the other extreme, you know, where the person goes to Syria and joins ISIS. The bit in between, which is by far and away the largest bit, Mm-hmm. is overlooked yeah, the one, the one thought, who, who just wants to muddle through get on with their life and just you know like everybody yeah, else exactly mm-hmm. yeah just wants to get on with yeah. stuff and have problems you know mm-hmm. and it's the sort of problems we all have with our kids and you know with money and things like that yeah and that's how it is in the east end you know there's the I said earlier, you know, I can't afford to live there. No, I can't. But, of course, there are still thousands and thousands of people who live there who can't really afford to live Mm -hmm. there. And that is a tension now. That is a big tension between uh, you you find a lot of the housing estates now have been knocked down. Mm -hmm. And, you know, despite 
all sorts of assurances that, yeah, we're going to build houses for the people that originally, yes, we are, yeah. And then you find they've been sent somewhere mm-hmm. else in the country oh, yeah. and the new houses are for rich people. Ah, the gentrification is going on yeah. and on. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, you sort of, and and the developers and the government to some extent as well will say, to, but, well, there's the houses, we've built them, you know, and people like me will say, I don't have £800,000. <laughs> And they go, oh, yeah, but you had the opportunity. Uh, great, <laughs> yeah. great opportunity. I think it's the same everywhere. Yeah. Yes, I think it In is. In some regard, yes. Yeah, yeah I think it is. Mm-hmm. But uh, coming back to your newest book, Bright Price, <laughs> there's a lot in there. Ooh, we, indeed. We start off with the coming wedding of this Dr. Suleiman mm-hmm. and a gypsy it, woman tiny bit of a problem that appears and so he sets out to try to solve it then there's a more or less um, case that seems like quite simple of a suicide but Mm -hmm. um, more and more they discover there are questions um, difficult questions and they try to find out and And then something about quite strange yeah about I mean um, think of his apartment poisons and Art fraud, maybe, or mm-hmm. theft. So there's a Close. lot of it in there, yeah. just in one book. Yeah. And yeah, the the art fraud and, and theft, it, I got very interested in this because this is this is something that is just going on all the time, you know, especially when a country is at war, huh. these artifacts can just sort of dribble out. Mm-hmm. You know, they can end up anywhere, yep. particularly online. Yeah, you know, true. if you're familiar with the dark web, I oh. mean, I'm not, but I know of it, <laughs> and I know, yeah. <laughs> and I guess it was sort of, you know, there's there's various directions in which that can go. Because the other thing I was um, investigating was religious relics, you know, because actually mm-hmm. you don't have to go onto the dark web to find them. I found them just randomly online you know want a bit of the arm of St John you know (laughs) (laughs) and it raises all sorts of questions you know and because we all know there are these big art collectors very very rich people who you know they will do anything whatever their particular interest is they want to possess it they're only going to put it in a vault somewhere so nobody else can see it and there's been lots of this stuff turkey seems to be a bit of a crossroads Mm -hmm. for that because as soon as you get to turkey if you're coming from somewhere like syria or iraq you know you you get to turkey you're safe but what a lot of people try and do is they try and get stuff out Uh, I mean, raids are going on the whole time. It's just incredible. And then it sort of occurred to me that, you know, maybe people, maybe people make fakes as well because mm-hmm. it's such big business. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that was really interesting. And it was also interesting to find out a little bit about, uh, like we mentioned before, these tensions between uh, the Roma in Turkey Mm. and your average uh, Turkish population and between everybody else and how strong that communities are, Mm. actually. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, the Roma have been in in Istanbul for 500 years. You know, unlike in this country, in in the UK, the Roma here, um, well, I mean, 
they've been forcibly settled in more recent mm. years. But, you know, that sort of length of time ago, they travelled, mm. you know, whereas in Istanbul, yes, of course, they travelled to get there, but they settled there. Mm -hmm. They felt confident enough to settle there and had been in that quarter for 500 years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And but the tensions still remain. Yeah. I can imagine that it is not well perceived from both sides that a Turkish police inspector mm. marries a Roma woman. It's not just the age difference. Yeah, I mean, that's also um, yeah, not a point. <laughs> that's a point, but it's not the main point. The main point yeah. is that she is a Roma. Mm. Yeah, and, and she's a policeman. And he's a policeman and he's yeah. Turkish and... His family also had some standing in the past, so yes. he also I mean, comes to attention in. Yeah. There's a lot against them, yeah. yeah. I mean, but she's, you know, she's an educated person. Mm -hmm. She's an artist yeah. and she's very, very well informed. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that was, I was trying to make that point. It's sort of, yeah, all these people are saying, oh, no, you know. <laughs> But actually, on on some levels, they are really well matched mm -hmm. because you know she is she's a clever person, yeah. you know, and he's she she's probably I always see her as cleverer than he is because <laughs> she manipulates him. Yeah, to a definitely, large definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, I then, think you get it right from the start that she. Yeah. The one who pulls the strings. Yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah. but then that's us, isn't it, ladies? <laughs> we are women. <laughs> yeah. That's why we are all rich. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. But, but somehow I get a feeling. It seems like living there is like living in a minefield a bit, because moving around between the different cultures and languages and expectations. It seems quite difficult to me. You, you, I think you have to be uh, Maybe because aware. I'm not used to it. Yeah. yeah supposedly you have to be aware who not to cross and which toes not to tread on, probably. Especially yeah. if you are going there in an official capacity. Especially for yeah. the police, probably. But I think that that is a general problem for police, mm. wherever you are. Yeah. You know, because there are going to be, you know, there are going to be different groups of people mm that for one reason or another, you can't tread on their mm. toes. Yeah. I mean, you know, in in London, the Met, you know, the Metropolitan Police are going through quite a torrid time at the moment because a lot of people think that they are protecting certain mm. people in mm. society mm. when they shouldn't be. So it's always going to be like that. And in a place like Istanbul in in the poorer quarters like the east end of London you know you've got local godfathers hmm. you know, people always say oh there's no organized crap well there is you know <laughs> it always has been but they change over time and yeah. sometimes they come from an ethnic minority sometimes they don't hmm. and you know you have to be aware of this sometimes you have to tiptoe very carefully around somebody to get to where you want to be yeah. mm -hmm. so it's always a balancing act i think yeah yeah i think hmm. it's a little bit like that in every country also dealing with like you said the godfathers or the organized yeah. crime isn't it yes yeah and some of these godfathers you know they are also politicized mm. Nowadays, yeah. Yeah. more so now than I think in in the past. Yeah. So you know you've got you've got sort of crime bosses who are 
Um, I mean, in, in the UK, some of the crime families have been intimately connected with football hooliganism and right-wing politics. Mm-hmm. So, you know, those are the sort of things that you have to think about. A book I'm writing, it, it is set in Istanbul at the moment. We're looking at three godfathers, mm-hmm. if you like, um, and they all have different perspectives. Oh. And that is... It's taken me quite a long time to write because it's quite difficult, actually. But that's that is the reality of the situation. You know, they they are they may have you know truces between yeah. them. You know, they they mm-hmm. will cover a certain area and you yeah. don't step over into their territory. But um, often they've got different political standpoints as well, which can be a problem nowadays. Oh, I see. And is it also true? I mean, there was also there there is the rumor there was the rumor, for example, in Sicily, yeah, mm. where the mafia yeah. was the one in power. It was quite safe for you as a tourist. Yeah, could could the same be said, let's say, for a place like Turkey or in in, yeah. in particular in Istanbul? Oh yeah, yeah. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to be. At risk, unless you get caught in a crossfire, of course, <laughs> um, from from these people. Because unless you're part of that, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll give you a story from in uh, my old street in London. We had there was a man who lived on that street, and he was involved with one of the Godfathers. And one night, a bloke came to his house. And he knocked on the door. He opened the door, and the man shot him dead. Ooh. But he was involved in that. The rest uh-huh. of us in the street completely unaffected by it. Uh-huh. Okay, and that's how it is. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's a bit of a shock, but yeah. they're not going to come and kill. Why would they? Yeah. You know, you're not involved. Yeah. Yeah. So. And like I said, they made it rather safe for mm. visiting there. So. It can, I mean, you know, in big cities, random things can happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, especially when you've got a sort of burgeoning population mm. um, because there's a lot of tension around sort of resources, if you like. You know, you if Istanbul, if it is now 20 million people, yeah. that's 20 million, well, 10 million, shall we say, homes that have to be got and that's difficult yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah you know and of course some of that housing is going to be official housing and it's going to be good and what have you but there's going to be a whole load of other housing yeah. that's going to be completely yeah. off grid yeah. and you know probably quite dangerous yeah. I also wanted to ask you something which came up when I looked through your books on on Amazon Critics compare you and your Ickman series to Donna Leon. Hmm. I'm flattered by it. <laughs> I like her books enormously, but they're not. They're not sort of. There's not really a connection there. I think it's just probably British critics going, "Oh, that's another one that's abroad," you know. But um, no, I mean, I I am flattered by it. You know, mm-hmm. she's an extremely good writer. She's been going for a lot, lot longer than I have. Uh, I've met her, actually. Oh. She's really lovely. Oh. Um, 
but you know no I wouldn't say I wouldn't say it's, it's really I think it's I think it's publicity as well isn't it um, publishers okay. hooking mm-hmm. people in yeah. you know if you like that you'll like that yeah yeah so you know? so uh, Barbara Needle the the British Donna Leon yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think it's sort of, yeah, a lot of this is spin, isn't it, really? But maybe it also has to do with the way you describe the city, mm. the stories mm. are set in, because you yes, describe it, it quite be. clearly and intimately, and somehow mm. make it, hmm, I might want to go there on holiday. Yeah. In this sort of well, way. I so. hope so. Mm. You know, you hope so, because you hope to, It, you know, Istanbul is so fascinating, And it's such a wonderful experience. There, you know, there's something. Well, yeah. Let's face it. Something strange will happen. There's always something around the corner, and uh, I find it fascinating. And I think one of the things you want to put forward when you're an author is the things that have given you joy. You want to sort of try and share with people to some extent. I also have to ask you as well, because we ask that every writer we have on our show, and after, um, what is it, 34 books? Something like that. Yeah. (laughs) What what would be your advice for an aspiring author out there? Hey, well, I'm a bit behind the times now, because my books have always been traditionally published. And of course, as we know, there are other avenues now there you know amazon publishing mm. there are also other sort of non-traditional ways mm. of getting your work out there so i can't really advise anybody on that but if you're talking about the traditional way i think it is you know when i was trying to get published there was only that route mm. and i think if you want to go that route even now it it's sort of try and cut out as many ways that a publisher or an agent can say no to you. (laughs) A lot of things that I have heard about involve people writing to agents or publishers without doing research. So we have the Artists and Writers Yearbook, this lists all the the publishing houses, the the agents, the magazines. And in every entry, They specify what they specialize in, what they're looking for, you know, and people don't read that. I know it sounds really simple, but, you know, if you send a a work of romantic fiction to an agent who specializes in crime, they're just going to put it back in the envelope, send it back to you. (laughs) But you'd be amazed at how many times that happens. The other thing as well is present your work as well as you can you know if you're not confident use there are some good editing you know professional editing services out there and I would use one if you're not confident because a lot of the uh, publishers and the um, agents they will ask for far arguments say three chapters and a synopsis and a covering letter and they want your your synopsis and your three chapters to be double-spaced, just for argument's sake. And people, you know, they get this, they will get hundreds of these every week and they will open it up and it won't be double-spaced and so that's more difficult to read. So that makes it much more likely for them to say, you know what, (laughs) I'm Mm -hmm. just going to throw that away. 
you know, and not following the instructions. It is a huge problem. Hmm. I, I don't know why, but it is with people. It's a huge problem. Follow the instructions. Because if you can get them, if you can get their attention, if they've got no excuse, like they, they read the first sentence and it's all sort of, you know, it's all misspelled, <laughs> jumbled up, that you're not going to, they're just going to, Chuck it to one side. Also, on those lines, you know, when you are first, I know not every book starts with a ban, but when you're talking about something active, like crime fiction, like espionage, something like that, it's a really good idea, particularly if you're trying to get published, to sock them in the face (laughs) with your opening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because you've got their attention, then then they'll read the more kind of mm-hmm. mundane, prosaic stuff where you can show another part of your skill. Hmm. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. And and also to to keep going. I mean, it took me years to get published. I thought it was never ever going to happen because yeah. you know I was completely clueless. <laughs> I wasn't in the right sort of sphere. Mm. You know, who wants somebody who works in a psychiatric hospital? It's just, you know, it's too weird. But you've got to, you've got to work with what you've got. Yeah. So, you know, your job, if you like, is to try and bring that agent, that publisher around to your point of view. Because the thing is, they are always looking for the next big thing. They mm. are. And what sometimes happens um, when we, uh, to give you an example, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, um, (laughs) every publisher in the world was looking for their own version of that. So we got, I don't know whether you remember, there were loads of books that had the similar cover to Fifty Shades of Grey, certainly in the UK. And, of course, there was only one Fifty Shades of Grey. Thank goodness for that. <clears throat> yes. Just saying. Whatever. But, <laughs> you know, to replicate that. So, yeah. what I'm saying is, plow your own field. Yeah. You know, they're looking for something that, yeah, they may have an idea in their head, but usually that idea is changed because, you mm-hmm. know, it's like the whole Harry Potter thing. Mm. Who is the next J.K. Rowling? Well, there isn't one. Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. new needs to come along. Yeah. And yeah. so, there's no reason why you, Mr. Perspective Writer shouldn't be yeah. that that new thing. So don't try and kind of actively kind of second guess the market because it is impossible to yeah. guess. And if you want to get somewhere, your your original voice has more power and so it should than trying to emulate somebody else's. Yeah. yeah. That's good advice, I think. Yeah. And it's cool. valid as yeah. well. You know, yeah. somebody like me from middle you know from nowhere can do this sort of thing then so so can you so barbara is there anything else about your future projects past projects you would like our listeners to know about well the ikmen books are being made into a tv series (gasps) yeah it's they're filming right now oh yeah in istanbul yeah It's being made, I can't tell you a huge amount about it, but it's being made by a a sort of three-way partnership between two American companies, Viacom and Miramax, Mm -hmm. and the Turkish production company, Ayapin. 
And yeah, it's being filmed in Istanbul. It'll be on Paramount Plus next oh. year. Oh, congratulations. Yes, thank you. Mm, that's great so, news. Yeah, that's we wonderful. Hit, we hit the screen. So, yeah. yeah. It was only a question of time, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was a lot. <laughs> only 24 books in. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it was, hey, still. Fantastic, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. So that's really, I'm hoping to go out in the next few weeks and see what they're up to. Oh. So, yeah. Oh. Oh, adventurous. Yeah, great. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and did you have a say in who's going to play your main character, Inspector no, Ickman? No, I recommended some <laughs> people. And obviously I didn't I didn't write the script because, you know, it I don't know, some some writers do, some some yeah. don't. It, it wasn't an option in this case. But yeah, let's see what happens. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, hopefully there will be a huge uptick in sales of the books. Yeah, absolutely. After the series shows. Well, I don't know because it is not coming out till next year. Yeah, but next yeah. year, next year, So we will see. Mm. We will see. Oh, I, I hope think, so. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, I hope mm. so. Anything else you would like our listeners to know? No, I don't think so. I think we're <laughs> up to date so far. <laughs> It was such a pleasure talking to it you, Barbara. It was a pleasure to yeah. meet you too as well. It was fun. It was very informative, very intriguing to learn more about. And, and the list of books to read yes. got a bit longer. Yes, 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 yes. Because yes. they all sound interesting. Indeed, they do. Yeah. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah. It was, it was wonderful talking to you. Thank you again yeah. and have a nice weekend. Thank you. And, and you? Yep. Yes. Okay. Well, you take care. You too. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as we did and we'll meet again at Book Lovers Companion. If you liked this ad-free episode, you might consider buying us a coffee or even become a member and listen to new episodes earlier than everybody else. You can do either at buymeacoffee.com slash booklover.com. You can find the link in the description.